coming to you from beautiful Santa Barbara, California. Promoting peace, healthy living, and happiness. It's the Peace Podcast with host Barbara Gon Mueller. It is such an honor to have you join us today on peacepodcast.org. I'm Barbara Gonmuller. I am your host and the creator of peacepodcast.org. Why? Because I believe every conversation can lead you to peace, happiness, and healthy living. And today I am going to have the honor of interviewing Ava Haller. Ava and I have something in common. We're both Hungarian survivors. She survived the Holocaust. I survived my grandfather telling me, war does not work. You, young lady, are going to be a peacemaker. And I said, Grandpa, you came from Hungary to avoid World War I. What can I do? And he said, you are only three. And look at the life you can live working for peace. And to this day, I thank him. Eva, welcome. What a wonderful heritage. What a lovely, lovely possibility that you had a grandfather you could relate to, that you can remember, that you can quote, that a grandfather who must have taken such delight in you. That is really wonderful. Well, he was very convinced that I had a destiny to help this world achieve the peace it needed. And that destiny has materialized in things like Peace Podcast, the Rotary E-Club of World Peace, marrying Dr. Robert Mueller. Let's start no, with something. Right. Yeah, yeah, let's start with something that you said last night in our Rotary E-Club of World Peace interview. You said, I happen to, well, first I have to go back. You have to hear this. She is a strict and a fierce advocate for social justice. At age 13, with her brother John, she was in Budapest handing out anti-Hitler literature. When he passed, shot by the Nazis or whoever killed this young, beautiful man, she changed her mind and said, I have to do what my grandfather said. I had to do work for peace. Right, Ava? Oh, absolutely. It was in memory of John that I wanted so much to honor. I missed him so. He was seven years older yes. than I. And anytime I got into mischief, it was because I wanted to do what he was doing. So if he <laughs> was printing at night uh, leaflets about Hitler, then I wanted to be there and, and give them out. Unfortunately, he was caught and uh, he was... Hello, darling. No, please. Thank you. Appreciate your help. You wanted to bring me something to eat because he's a very caring, loving guy. But as I was telling you, uh, John uh, was caught and uh, jailed and sentenced to death. And he was, you know, he was a kid. And my father, fortunately, was a man of influence. And after about nine months of, of, of trying to, to postpone the killing and the hanging of my brother, we were able to, he was able to be freed and come home. And then, of course, the German physical occupation happened and he was taken by, with all the other young men to forced labor. 
he escaped uh, with four others and they were going over to Tito, to Yugoslavia, to the partisans to fight against Hitler. He was 21. And so um, they were living in the woods trying to find their way over to Tito. And one night they were in an empty barn and they heard a dog's bark and rifle shots. And so my brother said to the four others, go out on the back door, I'm gonna cover and we'll escape. The four others did survive. My brother was, my brother saved their lives, but he was killed. So when he didn't come home after the war, my mother took the train, which was hard because there were not too many trains after the war, sat on the roof of a train to try to find that village where the four survivors described they left my brother. And mother got to that village and to that barn and there on the laundry line was hanging my brother's shirt mm. that my mother recognized. Mm. And that was January 1945. Those are the memories that propel you into a life of service and propel you into a, a life of peace and a life of standing up, standing up against what isn't right. And that's what I hear you telling me. Your mother must have been devastated. Well, the whole family was, you know, the war ended. We, we had a hope to have a new life. The, the Nazis were gone. Life was to be had, and yet, yet we were so diminished. We were so diminished. It was a life shortly lived. You know, my um, dear late husband, Robert Mueller, also was in this uh, a situation where he was arrested and put in prison. And he said, I am going to work for peace and that I am not going to let my grandchildren see the horrors of war that I have experienced. And that's what you're saying, the horrors of war, the innocence. And you don't know what to do sometimes as a young person, but your life was made up of coincidences. I'm going to say it like that. Absolutely. You... I think I think almost everybody's life is made up in, from coincidences. You know, it's not, uh, that's how it is. But it doesn't matter what causes the, what matters is your recognition when you have an opportunity, when you have a coincidence, when, when you have just a sudden opportunity to, to grab, to hold, to say, hey, yeah, I think, I think this is something worthwhile exploring. I have $20 in my pocket. I can go to America. I can figure it out if they just let me in, which was, of course, difficult in the McCarthy period to be a Hungarian refugee. They really didn't want me, but I wanted to be here. You were meant to be here. And I think this idea that opening up these opportunities and experiences enrich our lives. And then we're living to tell about those enriching, those enriching experiences. When you came to America, where did you live? What, what were the beginning of your times here in America? Well, it was uh, about, uh, this was 1952. Mm -hmm. So... I was not a very old woman yet, you know? It, it was sort of like a, a, an interesting experience to be here. Uh, I arrived because I had an aunt and, an, and her two kids 
in living in America. And they were very insular and they really didn't look forward to having another person in their lives. Mostly I was always considered, even as a child, a rebellious person, not easy to handle. But they were kind enough to uh, allow me into their home. But I arrived around six o'clock in the morning and uh, by eight o'clock in the morning in their little home, they put in front of me the New York Times, the help wanted section. So it, that was a pretty clear explanation of my future, that they wanted me to be independent, to go to work and not be with them. So I started cleaning houses because that's the only thing I knew how to do. I was 22 years old. I uh, didn't have, I spoke English. Uh, that was an advantage. Uh, British English kind, because that's what I learned back home. I had a British nanny when I was a kid. Anyhow, so, and I learned English like Dickens, dead as a doornail kind of language. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, so I kept on cleaning houses. And then one day I realized that this is a treadmill. And in order to get out of a treadmill, you have to do something else. And so I went to night school at Brooklyn College. And uh, slowly I worked my way into getting a degree and another degree and another school and whatever was necessary to do. And uh, yeah. And well, how did I, you ever end up at the United Nations? That's the part I can't get over because we're celebrating Human Rights Day, celebrating Eleanor Roosevelt, who created right. human rights and look at your human rights once you got to america what how it changed you had the right to go to school you had the right to be free and these are the human rights every human deserves well you know uh that human right that i deserved i i cost a lot of money i, I worked extra hours to pay for the lawyer for getting the immigration because hungarians you, you know as as you know not all immigrants are equal and coming from, if I would have come from Norway or Sweden or England or whatever, it would have been easier to get a, vi a resident visa. But coming from a communist country, from, you know, from Hungary, even if I am an escapee, I'm still under the quota of, of anyhow, it, it's, it's, we know what the migrants are going through and we know what immigration is about and we know how incredibly so less and and helpless one can be but in any case it it, it i was fortunate and uh, uh several things came together i i heard about the international house that david rockefeller started because he had this idea that if you bring students together from everywhere in the world graduate students under one roof to live there near columbia university these are the sons and daughters of the rulers, of the diplomats. And that if they get to know America, and if they feel good here, they are going to bring back home to their country a comfortable, good feeling and connections to Americans. And so uh, they had 70% foreigners, many of the Arab countries, 
and 30% Americans. And I went to apply and Miriam McDonald, the intake uh, vice president, uh, was very kind, listened to my story and said, you know, we only take graduate students. You are just a beginning undergrad. And I said, well, and then she said, and how do you support yourself? I said, oh, I work during the day and I go to school at night. She said, you know, the whole idea of the international house is that students are at the house after going to school too. We have all the opportunities for them to meet here, to watch television together, to put up plays, to whatever, have dinners together. And you're obviously never gonna be here mm -hmm. to sleep. And I said, that's true, but I just think I would love it more than anything else. So that's how I got my first Rockefeller fellowship, scholarship. And it changed my life. My best friends today are still the people I met 70 years ago, 68 years ago. I can understand because you were, you know, but you were convinced you were supposed to be there. One of the things I love about you is your resilience and your tenacity that you say, wait a minute, I do belong here. And that convinced that person to put you into that. And then you talked last night about being at a dinner with Doug Hammarskjöld and Eleanor Roosevelt. It's amazing. Once you step on a path, all of the coincidences and opportunities that come your way. Have you found that in your life? One coincidence leads to another. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it is really so interesting on how uh, you you sort of like, you know, a little immigrant, Hungarian immigrant. I didn't know of any of anything of what then happened to me later, but it was sort of, it was there and people were kind to me and I accepted their kindness. And then it turned out to be that these were all people who had great power to influence my life. And that happened to me several times. Uh, the, the last time, which I don't know if you have time for this, and I'm trying to get out of the light. You're fine. You're just fine. Okay. Oh, no, it's okay. It, you look uh, great. Okay. Uh, so I went to school and then I, I heard about the new school for social research. And I don't know if you know that school, but it is a university that was founded by immigrants, you know, from World War II who escaped before the war or during the war or after the war. And they had the biggest names of the European intellects from Hannah Arendt to everybody else who, who has written books, who has taught at Berlin University or whatever. It was an amazing place. So I applied. I thought, yeah, that's it where I would like to go to college instead of city college. I, I would love to have this, this European education. And again, I applied and there was really no reason to take me in because it was a graduate school and they were sort of thinking about undergrad, but was not that. Anyhow, the intake person was the vice president, Clara Meyer, whose family founded and funded the university, which today is one of the largest universities in New York. And so she said, okay, not only she allowed me in and I could take courses there, but it was towards a degree. Not only was it towards a degree, but she invited me 
to her home for dinner. And I arrived to this very huge brownstone on 72nd Street in New York and uh, rang the bell. There were three bells and the butler kind came out. And I said, I'm here to, to Dean Clara Meyer. I, I pushed a button. I didn't know which one is her apartment. And he said, Madam, this is her home. I said, oh, okay, that's good. <laughs> and from then on, at least once a month, Clara had me over for dinner. And at the dinner table were all those people that I read their books. I, you know, it was an incredible experience. And, and so, you know, that, that's how, and then years passed. <clears throat> I graduated, I went on with life. And one day I got an invitation to a birth uh, celebration of a kid. And the card showed the house where the, the family lives. And I said to myself, you know, I, I, I know that house. I know that, I know that look. And that's a very, it's the largest brownstone on that block. And I looked it up and sure enough, it was the house where I used to go to, to have dinner at Clara Meyer. It was 11 o'clock at night when I figured all this out and I picked up the phone, I couldn't help myself. And it was Margie Loeb, the Loeb family, who invited me to this birth uh, celebration. I said, Margie, you live in Clara Meyer's house. And she said, yes, how did you know? I said, I know the house. Mm -hmm. She said, Eva, you don't realize, but we spent, and they did spend $12 million to make the house back to what it was like in the 1920s. And, and she's been trying to find, they've been trying to track down people who knew Clara because they were writing the history of the house, of that very, very beautiful home. And so, they arranged immediately for me to be interviewed by all kinds of people who were working on the book, doing the research. And so I introduced them to the current deans of the new school so that they can now have, bring it together, bring the history together with today's new school and the whole idea of creating the legacy of Clara that was really not well documented. So between the house that wasn't documented, Clara's life that wasn't well enough documented, because this is 60 years later, 70 years later, you know, it's sort of like, uh, hey, we would like to know our roots, but we don't have the links for the roots. So I'm the link at the New School for Social Research to Clara Meyer and to the house that she lived in. Now, if this isn't a coincidence, then what is? That's right. That's what I mean. You were open to experiences. I have watched the 23-minute film of you on My Hero, and you have influenced. You have been like a bee, a little bee pollinating things, going around and giving people the courage to live their dreams. I have seen you work with young people. I have seen you work with artists. Now you have a salon on Saturday. We're skipping a whole history of this woman. This woman... Ava is one of those Hungarian people who has created a world of help, support, and influence. 
And, and she says, there's one thing I got out of that film. If you know somebody that can help somebody do something that they're trying to do, connect them, be a networker, be a connector. You are a pollinator, a connector, and a loving spirit. I've never seen anybody get more hugs, more um, love messages than you in this video. So what is it about you that makes you so lovable? So and I think you just love experiences, don't you? I do, but there's one other thing, Barbara. Uh, women, even men, I think both, but women more than men are very competitive. And I understand that they have to be because it's not easy to be a professional woman. It's not easy to be a woman. So uh, therefore, women somehow developed an extra muscle, which is competition, competitiveness. And I find that and nobody competes with me. That's because I'm old. You know, there's something about uh, a 40 or 50 year old. They really have no need to compete with me because they are young and their life is ahead of them, in front of them. They are doing it. I'm no longer in the marketplace. I don't compete. So why not use who I am to enhance their lives and learn from me because there is no threat of a competition. And it made my life so much easier. Barbara, that's the, really the best part of being old is that people say, well, you know, little old lady, but she is you know, so kind and she can help. And, and since I am no longer in competition with anybody, I lost my competitiveness. I became a much nicer human being. <laughs> That's a wonderful way to put it. A much nicer human being who has a love for all. If you were to give our planet a message today from, I'm going to tell them your age, 90 plus years, meeting with Jane Goodall, meeting Eleanor Roosevelt, playing with some of the most fabulous artists on the planet, what is your advice today for us who are not quite 90, but really want to live our life to the fullest and create a world that works for all? I think that the only advice I would give anybody <coughs> is to enjoy your age, enjoy whoever you are, wherever you are. And sort of figure, be, be surprised. You know, be surprised. Allow yourself to be surprised about the sky, the beauty, the life, be surprised of how much you can still do and how important you are. I think your importance in terms of what you can still give, relevance, validation are the two words I use for myself. I want to be relevant and I want to be validated. When I wake up in the morning, I need to know that I'm going to do something that will validate my existence, that, uh, that I have a right to be alive. Because you, I it. you do have a right to be alive. And that's what people forget. They forget their destiny is coded in them and they just don't really want to take advantage of the gifts they have and share those gifts. Yeah. And once you realize that you have validated yourself. Validated yourself. Okay then the day gets to be so much easier because it sort of puts energy into your spine. And, and you are really feeling that you are contributing. You are making a difference. 
And we all are making a difference. We only want to do it. If you want to make a difference, you do. Well, I must finish today with something you started 40 Saturdays ago. You said, I'm in this COVID-19. I need my friends and I want to share something. What did you start 40 Saturdays ago, Eva? Well, I invited six friends on a virtual dinner. Uh, and I didn't know what kind of friends I wanted. But I asked Jerry White, who is a Nobel laureate, for the... Uh, landmine that he created, the Landmine Survivors Network that he worked mm -hmm. with Princess Diana. I invited Jerry, who's a very old friend, and a few other people. And we sort of sat around and we talked about just how are we going to, it was clear that we are in this in the long run. This COVID business is not gonna go away. And how can we make it into a more, uh, livable and of course my other my six other friends were not in an old age home i mean excuse me in a where where do i mean casa dorinda a retirement community a retirement community. Uh -huh. i consider it an old age home anyhow uh, <laughs> I, I it was it was no exit what do i do how can i retain my friends who do have a life outside even though they are in a lockdown, but but they, it's another life. It's still out there, and and so I decided to have another virtual meeting. I had to figure it out because a number of people in Europe who wanted to be part of Friends, and it's at eleven o'clock at night. But in Santa Barbara, it's two o'clock in the afternoon, and five o'clock in New York City. So I had to figure at a time which is bearable for all even though it's not pleasant for any but bearable you know i mean two o'clock in santa barbara on a saturday is not too bad 11 o'clock at night in europe was sort of stretching it but i couldn't do it later in the afternoon in new york because that would have been at midnight in europe and i didn't want to lose my my european friends so that's how it is 11 o'clock at night two o'clock in santa barbara and five o'clock in new york Every Saturday there is a salon, and uh, last week it was a Bill Potter, who is the head of the Monterey Institute for Non-Proliferation, and he gave us a pretty dire picture about our situation in terms of our nuclear policy. Well, you have such a variety of people that you've had. You had Jeannie Myers with My Hero Project, with, which gets millions of viewers every month. You're on her program. You know, you have what I call the most interesting people. And there are probably a lot of them are the ones that you have met in your life. Well, they are all my friends mm -hmm. because uh, in this COVID time, it's not easy to reach out to people whom you don't know right. or are not close to you. Uh -huh. So this Saturday, we are having two very powerful women. Uh, I like to have women on. And it's it's easier to find uh, men, famous or men who are the accomplished men than, than find women. But they exist, and all you have to do is look. Mm -hmm. And these two friends of mine, Catherine Marshall, who was the second in command of the World Bank, and uh, Atalia Oren, who is a senior professor at Notre Dame of religion and uh, 
social studies, and they are going to discuss religion. And that's a pretty, pretty scary topic. You know, the role of religion, the, the good, the bad, the evil, the power, and all of that. And a couple of stories. Uh, and I wanted to title that lecture, The Archbishop and the Banker, because mm -hmm. Do I have any more time to tell you? Yes, story? please. We want, you know, as she is talking about the Archbishop and the Banker, I want you to know that it's at two o'clock every Saturday. And uh, when you listen to Peace Podcast, well, we'll put down at the bottom the, the, the Zoom link so that you can join us. So you don't have to worry about that because I don't want you to miss one of these Saturdays. Please go on, Ava. Well, anyhow, the, uh, the story goes that uh, Jim Wolfenson, who was the head of the World Bank, right. uh, was having dinner or whatever with Archbishop Lord George Carey in London. Mm -hmm. And George, who is a very good friend of ours, I serve on several boards with him, uh, George uh, accused Jim in a friendly way. You know, you, you do all kinds of things for the world, but you do nothing about morality, uh, religion, spirituality, that is very important to consider in all the countries that the World Bank funds. And Jim Wolfenson thought about it. And with great respect to George, he said, you know, I, I agree with you. I flew back to America and asked Catherine, the second in command, to create a division at the World Bank. And she did, and this is like 30 years ago. So that's where the archbishop and the banker come into the story, because it is Catherine who is going to be presenting. You know, there's this, uh, you, you're bringing up another thing that I totally believe. Our words are so powerful. Our words, our thoughts. If we could spend our time thinking about the world we want, the peace we want, it creates a vibration. And you carry that peace with you. And the vibration of trying to realize that we have to have spirituality in the World Bank. That, you know, so many wars on our planet today are religious wars. My God's better than your God. My religion's better than yours. These are words that could be healed and we could have a, a mutuality where we could get along. And that's my dream. That's why I'm interviewing you. And I would love to keep talking because I want people to see the resilience of a 90 plus year old woman, I should say young woman, who has created a world around her that supports her and she supports them right back. We're listening to Eva Holler and this woman has created such an array of friends. And I hope that you're able to understand that friends keep us young. I swear there's three things that I think make me feel good. Friends, joy in my heart, and being of service. And then I can stay like, as Ava said, you still look like you were 20 years ago. And I say, yeah, that's because I have peace in my heart. Right, Ava? Absolutely right. This woman is so special. Well, I am Barbara Gahn-Mueller. I thank you so much for joining us today. I'm going to send along with my little description of her, I'm going to send the podcast that we did last night, as well as the wonderful My Hero 23-minute video of Ava Holler. Ava, do you have a last word today? Thank you.
Thank you. I love being with you. You are such a role model. When Jane Goodall described you um, in this 23-minute video, the words that she said were profound, how you have influenced her, that you went to help her with her chimpanzees. And there you were. She's also on peacepodcast.org, if any of you are interested in finding out more about Jane. Jane is, is magic. But she had a dream. When she was a little girl, as you did, when you were a little girl and your brother was killed and you said, I'm not going to let this happen anymore. She had a dream. She was going to work in Africa and her mother went with her. When you have a dream, and I truly believe this, when you have that dream, the universe will support you, but you have to stick to it. Stick to it. Don't give up, right? Look at you. You never gave up. No. See? No, not yet. Not yet. But you know what? I'm now going to go and make breakfast. She's going to make breakfast, and I'm going to thank you for joining us. You're listening to Eva Holler, and I hope you'll join us every week for a peace podcast. God bless you. Thank you, Eva. Thank you, love. You're welcome. You're so welcome. God bless you. Bye-bye.